All right, well, let's take our Bibles and let's turn to the third chapter of Ruth as we continue in this incredible study. This is, you know, it's always a blessing. I mean, I, I just, I remember I had, uh, I was just considering going into ministry and we had called a new pastor in Idaho and, and I was talking with him, you know, I was very excited to get out and to go to seminary. And I said, so what's it like? Because he had pastored for quite a number of years, even though new at our church. And um, I, I said, so, so how is it to pastor? I mean, what's it like to prepare messages in and out each week and a couple a week and, and to do all that? He goes, you know, I'm, I'm the most blessed man of all. And, and I truly feel that way. I mean, I understand that so keenly. I think I'm much, much more blessed than he is because God has blessed me to be with y'all. And it's just incredible to be able to minister here, to look into this word and, and to get your feedback and to hear how this word is impacting your lives. And, and, I, and, I, and I know that it has been. And it's such a joy to see that all God has done as we go through this incredible picture of God's faithfulness in Ruth. Well, we return tonight to the third chapter of this great book, and as we turn there, we come to the close of this great third chapter. As we think about and reflect on what we've talked about, think about all of the speculations that have happened since the beginning of this chapter. Chapters one and two were very concrete, very amazing, but from a theological, from an interpretive point of view, they were very black and white and very clear cut. And we get to the third chapter and there's all this stuff in there. And commentators are all over the place on what it's about. And yet we've been able to look through and understand from the first message that preparation for midnight, those three different approaches, and clearly understand based on God's word what was being revealed to us how we could recognize the right interpretation and why those others that are presented absolutely did not make sense. And God's word is always that way, and that is that perspicuous nature that we've talked about. How it is clear, how it is easily understood. We talked about the concept of the kinsman redeemer, the goel in Hebrew. How this is the one who can redeem an individual and how Boaz is a picture of a much greater redeemer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how scripture makes argumentations from the lesser to the greater. From Boaz, a man who had a great heart and a great love, to the one who has the perfect heart and the perfect love, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've talked about that great word, hesed which means steadfast love or loyal love and is often translated in Ruth kindness, but that's such a lame translation because this is such a huge word. It means the covenant-keeping love of God and it is the reflection of why Ruth becomes one of the most amazing love stories in the Old Testament even though the word love in particular is not used but it is God's hesed love that is evidenced. Our theme from the, the first five verses was that preparation for midnight, and we saw Naomi's instructions to, to Ruth on how to present herself to Boaz, and then last week we saw the presentation at midnight, all Naomi's commands from verses one through five, Ruth carries out. In her obedience and her submission, she goes forward just as her mother-in-law has instructed her. 
But then what of Boaz's response? How will he deal with this approach? Well, as we'd expect, it was with honor, but also with acceptance. Boaz accepts Ruth's approach, yet he tells her of this caveat, how there is a closer relative. He does not want her to be deluded. He does not want her to think that there's something that is is absolutely going to happen when there could be a a wrench that gets thrown into the, the cog here. So what will be the result? Well, tonight we move to the conclusion of chapter 3, and we go from our preparation at midnight to the presentation at midnight, now to the ponderance in the morning. And that's what I've titled our message, Ponderance in the Morning. As we look at our text, really there's five questions that we want to ask as we go through these verses from verse 14 to 18, because they will unfold for us this whole continuation of the story now i want to highlight for you one thing from verse 10 before we drive into our text and that is some words of boaz where he said may you be blessed of the lord recognize when you see that this is a prayer It's not in a traditional form where we see him praying directly to God, but he is praying to another person and asking for the blessing of God. He recognized Ruth's act as a refreshing thing and one worthy of the Lord's blessing. Blood, that's how we need to look at one another. We need to to proclaim the blessings of the Lord as we see the heart and soul and demeanor of joy and encouragement in our brothers and sisters' lives as they come to us amidst oftentimes very difficult circumstances, even those we've spoken about and prayed about tonight. How many are yet still an encourager when it'd be kind of easy to be down in the mouth when you get hit by a car at 80 miles an hour? But our brother is not down in the mouth. Now he's a little down in the foot because he got one of his, you know, little flip-flop things blown apart. But we're going to get some super glue and work on that. But, you know, this is, this is an understanding of, of how we need to rejoice and to reflect to them the blessings of God that, that they are to us amidst this affliction. And so many fulfill that in our church. Well, Boaz responds in exaltation he consents to her approach and basically agrees to marry her in verse 11 where he says i will do whatever you ask he praises her he says she is a woman of excellence in verse 11 as we talked about that wonderful climaxing verse in proverbs 31:10 and it's also in proverbs 12:4 and that is where it says that the excellent wife is the crown of her husband i just you know i, I can't miss an opportunity like that not because i need brownie points i haven't blown it in at least an hour but i am so blessed to have such an amazing wife to just pour herself into this whole move to continue to be supportive of our children of me of all the different circumstances you know she's working tirelessly and she's always like well well how are you doing how about this how's you know how's that affecting you are you hanging in there and and so many of you understand that you know, there's, there's marrying up, and then there's like marrying up about four or five grades. And I think I'm, I'm at least five or six. So very thankful for that. But it is that blessing of an excellent wife. And so grateful for that. 
Well, Boaz also concentrates his efforts on her, and verse 12 tells us that the outcome of this whole matter is uncertain. He wants to redeem her per the Leverite marriage custom, but it's dependent on a closer relative. So what will happen to Boaz's proposal? Well, we move into this last section of chapter 3 in our text tonight, and we see that in the ponderance in the morning. The five questions towards God's perfect outcome. Let me just read our text, and then we'll come back and talk about it, beginning in verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again, he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she said, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Five questions that will guide us towards God's perfect outcome. And our questions come from the basic inductive approach to Bible study, which we all need to keep in mind. Very simple, the, the five W's and an H. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. You remember those five W's and H, you get to a passage and you're not sure what's going on, pull out the five W's and an H and start asking questions of the text and let it reveal to you because God answers those in almost every immediate context of a Bible verse and that's what we're going to see. What's going to happen? We're going to find out by answering those questions. The only one we don't use of these actual six questions, five W's and H, is the why. Because we know why, because it is God's plan. So we just want to know what God's plan is, so we're going to look at the rest of those. So our first question is when. When, and it occurs in verse 14. The when is early in the morning. Ruth arose early in the morning, and so did Boaz. We learn from this that the idea of honor is foremost in their minds at this time neither wanted to risk compromising the honor of the other that's indicated for us at the beginning of verse 14 in the hebrew where it says so she laid his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another they're reflecting both of those terms reflect to another person their concern is not for their own honor but she is concerned about boaz's honor and he is concerned about hers so they get up at this excruciatingly early hour. But certain people can always speculate, even though nothing inappropriate occurred. That all just happens. That's what we saw with the whole presentation at midnight and some who thought this was a forward affront where a woman would actually approach a man for marriage or whether it was an immoral approach coming as a, a woman of the evening. Of course, neither of which were right. And here, some may yet still speculate that something went on, even though we've seen the clarity up to this point. Well, we know what we call that speculation. That is called gossip. And that is sin. 
And I want to remind you again, and I think I've said it before, if not, shame on me. We will say it again at some point in the near future. The definition of gossip. The definition of gossip. If you are directly involved with the problem or the solution, then it is not gossip. If you are not directly involved with the problem or the solution, then it is gossip. That comes from Dr. John Street, one of the foremost biblical counselors in the country, and uh, one of my teachers, uh, and uh, a dear pastor, and that is a sound definition and something we need to keep in mind. Because sometimes we wonder, is this, am I proliferating gossip? Ask yourself, am I directly involved with the problem? Am I directly involved with the solution? No, not just I want to hear about it and pray about it and tell three or four of my friends to pray about it. No, that, that's not it. Directly involved. Well, because of this, they rise before any light of day had spawned. At, at this point of the discussion, I, I just, do you think either of them got much sleep that night? I mean, it's a little bit speculative, but do, do you think really there was any sleep going on? Both were certainly thinking about how this whole thing was going to turn out. I mean, Ruth makes this approach. Boaz wakes up suddenly. She speaks with him, or he speaks with her. He agrees to her proposal. They're all thinking about how's this going to unfold in the morning? How could they get Ruth away without being seen, not wanting, of course, to oversleep? I don't think it was a very restful night. I just don't. Well, they're up before the dawn. And this is an interesting provision in the Mishnah. The Mishnah is the, the Jewish commentary on the Pentateuch. And we don't want to go too far into that. Most of it goes beyond the scripture and therein becomes legalistic. But in the, this commentary in the Mishnah, it says that if a man has relations with a Gentile woman, he cannot perform a Leverite redemption. So if Ruth would have been Jewish and something would have happened, Theoretically, they still could go ahead with the kinsman-redeemer aspect. But if she was a Gentile, which being a Moabitess, of course she was, that would violate and would not allow that to move forward. Now, even though nothing happened, it's very interesting to consider that. This custom could well have been passed down, even though written hundreds of years later. So even though no relationship had occurred, the gossip circle would be impossible to dispute, so they're up early to nip that in the bud. One other interesting thing occurs in this verse, and it's the wording at the end of the verse. It says, and he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Who is Boaz talking to? Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He obviously doesn't want anyone else to know she's there. This isn't just a vocal utterance that's out loud. It doesn't seem that he's addressing Ruth. He hasn't addressed her in any kind of form of this nature. Because this is not a direct discourse. And he called her woman. Although the mutual affection of the preceding section might lead us to think, if he's going to talk to her, he's going to call her Ruth or my daughter. But the woman, and, and there is, in the Hebrew, there is the definite article, the. So not a woman that's ambiguous, but the woman. 
the Hebrew gives us a little insight, and it seems likely that Boaz is talking to himself. Now, this, this isn't a terribly significant point, but it's something for us to consider because it could be giving us a hint as to the author of Ruth. Could Boaz be the one who wrote the book? In light of the exalting of women in the book, the tenderness that the author brings as he describes the interaction of Naomi in chapter 1. Some commentators have rejected this, but I think it's quite plausible, and others would agree with me, that this is an insight into the authorship of the book of Ruth. So as to when it's rising up early in the pre-dawn morning, as the answer to our first question, our second question is what? What is the purpose of the grain in verse, in verse 15? Where it says, again he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and he laid it on her. Then she went into the city. Before we answer the question of, of what is going on with the grain, consider the surrounding features. He tells her to give him her cloak. This is not Ruth's primary garment, nor is it her dress, her simla. So we can understand this as uh, a cape or a shawl or a scarf. But we also know it was not simply a decorative garment. Because we see a little later that a silk scarf or even cotton would not hold up to this kind of a situation. So he measures six measures of barley into this cloak. And notice that in your Bibles, the word measures is italicized because it's not in the original Hebrew. The original Hebrew simply says he measured six barley. Well, six what? Six epha, six homers, six seas. What, what is the measure that's being brought forward here? It, it couldn't possibly be an epha. That was what we saw in 2.17. If you go back to Ruth 2.17, she came home with an ephah of barley. That was enough for 30 days of barley. And that would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 uh, or better pounds that were, or, that were brought forward. So in this case, the total amount, if it were six measures, that would be somewhere between two to 300 pounds. No woman is carrying that much, especially because this is a significant distance for her to travel. The other thing, it could be an omer, which is a tenth of an ephah, but that's kind of wimpy. That would, be, that would be like six quarts of barley. Well, that's a nice gift, but it's, it's kind of spindly. So what we find is this is almost certainly uh, going to be a sia or a third of an ephah. Why does that matter and why do we understand that? Because a sia is that measure that would be a, a hefty amount. It would be a generous amount, but it would also be a weight that would be handleable. It would be about 60 pounds. And we noticed in the text, it says, so she held it and he measured six measures of barley and he laid it on her. Literally, he helped her get it up. So she, he poured it into whatever this cloak was, something of canvas, probably a heavy jacket that she had taken to stay warm in the evening. They put the, the barley in, they, they bagged it up, and then he helped her put it upon her head so that she could carry it into town. 
Well, th- this is uh, an interesting amount because this large quantity is further supported as, again, he helped her steady it. So what is the grain about? It seems to have three interconnected elements. First, it was likely a gift. Boaz had agreed to marry Ruth, if he can arrange it. And in addition to providing for her request, he also wants to provide for her physical needs. Remember that before she had gotten one ephah of barley, which was about 30 days. Now two in equivalent would be 60 days worth of grain. This is a huge amount of food that he has blessed her with. Additionally, it was likely an alibi. If she gets seen by someone on the way home and they're like, uh, what are you doing up in the morning? Kind of walking around this time of the day. Oh, well, I've simply gone out to buy some barley. So it seals and protects the honor of them both. So lastly, it was probably a down payment on a dowry. Uh, a first installment of, of what he would give her to be his bride. This was very common in the Jewish world, and it was called a mohar. A mohar, and it was the first installment that was paid at the time of engagement. It's like, here's my engagement ring. Okay, this is real. I'm on, I'm on my knee, and I'm, and I'm all into this thing, and here is a significant gift for you to see that I am all in. So our second question is what, that is what the purpose of the grain is. And again, it's threefold. It is to secure her honor, it is to sustain them with food, and it is to cement his commitment to the relationship. So with that, let's look at our third question, which is where. Where was the return? Verse 15 is again the scripture, and it says she returned to the city. Now actually, if you look into your Bibles, you probably will have, again, a footnote. It says he returned to the city in the footnotes there. So what's going on here? Uh, Why did this happen? Did Boaz return to the city, or did Ruth? Well, we know from verse 16 that Ruth returned. So that's no big surprise. Because she's talking with her mother-in-law. But as for Boaz's return, that seems out of place. No other discussion occurs in these verses about Boaz. Furthermore, he had much more work to do at the threshing floor. This is a well-to-do landowner. If he could simply harvest the grain and leave, he would have done that the night before rather than staying out in the elements. But there was more work that needed to be done the next day to separate the grain and to prepare some for storage and some for sale. So he wouldn't simply get up in the morning and bail, okay, this thing's happened, forget about the grain. That's not the kind of man he is. He is an honorable man. He is a wealthy landowner. He is a man who takes care of his resources. And that's what we've seen consistently. So what's going on here with all of this? Well, this is a Hebrew device, and, and it's, it's a long 50-cent seminary word, and it takes me a couple times to pronounce it, so we're just going to pass on the pronunciation. And you can just, if you want to know more about that, we'll struggle through the pronunciation together later. But what's happening here is that in Hebrew, sometimes they will change the the uh, the pronoun and the gender of the pronoun on purpose to draw our attention. It happens a number of places in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms. And why would that happen? Because he wants us to stop and consider what has just occurred. 
He's just given her this barley and laid it upon her. He want, and it doesn't tell us how much it is. The author is trying to get us to slow down and consider what he's saying. So he throws in this device that changes the gender of the pronoun. It's just a highlight to locate this in the text. But the where is in the city. Her return home after her exciting night. So our fourth question then is who? And it occurs in verse 16. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it go, my daughter? Now, I hope you're asking a question right here because you're good Bereans. Like, Pastor, don't you know who? Clearly, this is Ruth. I mean, what's the big secret here? Why are you asking this? Why is this a point? Is, Is anybody thinking that? Or perhaps you're asking a question like, isn't the real issue here how? Like, how did it go? Well, let me fill you in on a bit of my madness. I'm, I'm not totally crazy, only partially. And um, as you understand more, you'll recognize why you need to console my wife more because she deals with this all the time. So, why who? The Hebrew text literally says, who are you? Now we would see this, remember I told you last time, it's always good to look through some different versions of the Bible because they'll give you an insight into what's going on into some unique places. I just read the NASB and it says, how did it go? The ESV says, how did you fare? The New King James says, is that you? And oftentimes I come back to the King James as I do here, which says, who art thou? It's perplexed commentators forever, but there's no need for confusion. Naomi has not gotten, has not forgotten who her daughter-in-law is overnight, but it's in reference to the outcome of the night. It's a huge emphatic point. Are you Mrs. Boaz or are you still Ms. Ruth? Who are you? It's so much more dramatic than just saying, hey, how'd it go? So did he bite? What's going on? You know, you got one on the line or what? No, who are you? And that's, that's the way Hebrew works. It's colorful and it's exciting and it draws us in. And that, that's, you know, as men, we're like cut to the chase. So, yes or no? No, 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 no. That's, that's not, remember this is presented from a feminine form. So gentlemen, you got to pull back a little bit and look at this and understand why this flowery approach gives us so much more color. It's so much more expressive. Who are you? The who is, who are you, my daughter? And she tells her the events in the end of verse 16 to verse 17, where it says, and she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Ruth repeats the six measures and indicates the magnitude of the gift, that they were still marveling at all of the grain, And also the term empty-handed. This is the exact same Hebrew phrase back in Ruth 1.21. And if we turned back there, we would remember this is Naomi coming back into town, back into Bethlehem, and the Almighty has dealt harshly with me. He has returned me empty-handed. This was her accusation against God. He brought me back empty-handed. Well, now God has removed this from her life. She is no longer empty-handed. This is also 
foreshadowing in what we're going to see in chapter 4. Because all of a sudden, out of the blue, Naomi is cast back into this prophetic connectivity. She is no longer empty-handed. And any trace of Mara, any trace of bitterness is removed because God has abundantly supplied into her life. So with that, it takes us to our final question, and that is how? How will this all play out? And it's answered in verse 18. Then she said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Well, the answer how is still left open. We don't get the final conclusion yet. But we need to notice the tone change. At the beginning of chapter 3, how did Naomi speak with Ruth? Very commanding, wasn't she? Remember all those commands? Bathe, put on perfume, put on a proper dress. But now she is much more relaxed. She tells her, just see how the matter will fall. That's the literal translation. Just see how the matter will fall. It's if she's telling her to just sit tight. In the 80s jargon, we'd say, hang loose. Or, or perhaps today, we'd say, just chill. Or, I don't know, I'd have to get my sons here to get their proper current terminology. But the, the point is, don't worry. It'll all work out. Boaz won't rest until he takes care of it. So the last question is how? How will it play out? And unfortunately, we don't know. We, we aren't told yet. The preparation for midnight, which led to the presentation at midnight, and now to the ponderance in the morning, we don't yet know the answer, but we see some clear indicators that confirm for us all of the honor of Boaz and Ruth, and all of the power in the way God specifically reveals to us the nuances of his text. Well, the scene closes on chapter 3, and this is the last we will hear from Ruth. As Naomi faded to the background in chapter 2, Ruth now fades from the set, and she is not heard from again in a first-person fashion throughout the rest of the book. And although we aren't told how it will proceed, think of all that's been shown to us. Think of all the intricacies of God's plan. Could you possibly write a story with this many twists and turns? I mean, at every turn, it seems like with the real interpretation certainly must be something else. But the carefulness of the way that the text is crafted shows us exactly how God is bringing about all of these things and that the only way that they can happen is by Him. It's beautiful to see this. He gives us information of the most minute detail. And he continually assures us of his sovereignty, of his supreme control. And that as Ruth could just see how the matter falls, beloved, we too can sit back and see how the matter falls. This is just like our Christian lives. We don't need to worry we don't need to have the answer to every question. As hard as it is for us, we can rest in the Lord. We don't need to wonder and be all consternated about when the rapture will come. Because it will come when it's time. In the Lord's time. 
in your life, in my life, in my children's life? I don't know. Seems like perhaps, but I don't know. And we can just see how the matter will fall. We can rest in the Lord. When it comes to matters of how, how is Christ 100% man and 100% God, the answer is in just the right measure. And just like he's told us in his word, we need not worry, we need not stew, we need not sit and struggle and fight about the particulars of it, but to recognize that he is 100% man and 100% God. We need not fear, beloved. God has everything in control, and perfect love casts out fear. Isn't that reassuring? Isn't that a calming peace of mind? God tells us, don't worry. Matthew 6, 34 says, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Can anybody give me an amen on that? It indeed does. But yet he tells us a little further on in the wonderful text in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 1 Peter 5.7 tells us, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Beloved, Christ has it all in control. God is in con- full control of all that's going on, and that's all we need to know. We can let the rest fall as it will. The Holy Spirit lives in you. He guides you. He brings you the peace that passes all understanding as your heart and your mind are guided are guarded in Christ Jesus. Just rest in the Lord. How often need we come back to that wonderful text in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In how many of your ways? All. In all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will direct your path. God's got this, beloved. And this is one of the most glorious aspects of the love story with Ruth. Is there's this beautiful picture taking place of Boaz and Ruth and, and we'll see how this comes out next week. But the real amazing thing is there is a very real and personal love story with every one of you and God the Creator. And it is every bit as nuanced, it is every bit as perfect, and it is even more deep than even this beautiful picture because it is personal with every nuance of your life. And whether we're interpreting Scripture or the way God is working with us, we stop and come back to his word and recognize that inductive study, God will show us that which he is doing as we recognize that the way we are to live and to be before him in prayer, trusting in all that he has done. Amen.